Book Six, Chapter Forty Three of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Six, Chapter Forty Three. Robert, tired and sick at heart, felt himself in no mood this evening for a dinner party in which conversation would be treated more or less as a fine art. Liberal Catholicism had lost its charm. His sympathetic interest in Montalembert, Lacordaire, Lamennais had to be quickened, pumped up again, as it were, by great efforts, which were constantly relaxed within him as he sped westwards by the recurrent memory of that miserable room, the group of men, the bleeding hand, the white dying face. In Madame de Netfield's drawing-room he found a small number of people assembled. Monsieur de Coriol, a middle-sized, round-headed old gentleman of a familiar French type, Lady Aubrey, thinner, more lathe-like than ever, clad in some sumptuous mingling of dark red and silver, Lord Rupert, beaming under the recent introduction of a land purchase bill for Ireland, by which he saw his way at last to wash his hands of a beastly set of tenants, Mr. Warncliffe, a young private secretary with a waxed moustache, six feet of height, and a general air of superlativeness which demanded and secured attention. A famous journalist, whose smiling, self-repressive look assured you that he carried with him the secrets of several empires. And one Sir John Hedlam, a little black-haired Jewish-looking man with a limp, an ex-colonial governor, who made himself accepted in London as an amusing fellow, but who was at least as much disliked by one half of society as he was popular with the other. "'Purely for talk, you see, not for show,' said Madame de Netville to Robert, with a little smiling nod round her circle, as they stood waiting for the commencement of dinner. "'I shall hardly do my part,' he said with a little sigh. "'I've just come from a very different scene.' She looked at him with inquiring eyes. "'A terrible accident in the East End,' he said briefly. "'We won't talk of it. I only mentioned it to propitiate you beforehand. These things are not forgotten at once.' She said no more, but seeing that he was indeed out of heart, physically and mentally, she showed the most subtle consideration for him at dinner. Monsieur de Coriol was made to talk. His hostess wound him up and set him going, tune after tune. He played them all, and by dint of long practice, to perfection, in the French way. A visit of his youth to the island grave of Chateaubriand, his early memories as a poetical aspirant of the magnificent flatteries by which Victor Hugo made himself the god of young romantic Paris, his talks with Montalembert in the days of L'Avenir, his memories of Lamennais's sombre figure, of Maurice de Guérin's feverish ethereal charm, his account of the opposition salon under the Empire, they had all been elaborated in the course of years, till every word fitted and each point led to the next with the inevitableness of true art. Robert, at first silent and distray, found it impossible after a while not to listen with interest. He admired the skill, too, of Madame de Netville's second in the duet, the finish, the alternate sparkle and melancholy of it, and at last he too was drawn in, and found himself listened to with great benevolence by the Frenchman, who had been informed about him and regarded him indulgently as one more curious specimen of English religious provincialisms. The journalist, Mr. Adleston, who won a European reputation for wisdom by a great scantiness of speech in society, coupled with the look of Minerva's owl, attached himself to them, while Lady Aubrey, Sir John Hedlam, Lord Rupert, and Mr. Warncliffe made a noisier and more dashing party at the other end. "'Are you still in your old quarters, Lady Aubrey?' asked Sir John Hedlam, 
turning his old roguish face upon her. "'That house of Nell Gwynne's, wasn't it, in Mead Street?' "'Oh, dear, no. We could only get it up to May this year, and then they made us turn out for the season, for the first time for ten years. There's a tarsome young heir who has married a wife and wants to live in it. I could have left a train of gunpowder and a slow match behind, I was so cross.' "'Ah, reculez pour mieux faire sauter,' said Sir John, mincing out his pun as though he loved it. "'Not bad, Sir John,' she said, looking at him calmly. "'But you have way to make up. You were so dull the last time you took me into dinner that positively—you began to wonder to what I owed my paragraph in the Société de Londres,' he rejoined, smiling, though a close observer might have seen an angry flash in his little eyes. "'My dear Lady Aubrey, it was simply because I have not seen you for six weeks. My education had been neglected. I get my art, my literature from you.' The last time but one we met, you gave me the cream of three new French novels, and all the dramatic scandal of the period. I've lived on it for weeks. By the way, have you read the Princesse de... He looked at her audaciously. The book had affronted even Paris. I haven't, she said, adjusting her bracelets while she flashed a rapier glance at him. But if I had, I should say precisely the same. Lord Rupert, will you kindly keep Sir John in order? Lord Rupert plunged in with the gallant floundering motion characteristic of him, while Mr. Warncliffe followed like a modern gunboat behind a three-decker. That young man was a delusion. The casual spectator, to borrow a famous Cambridge mot, invariably assumed that all the time he could spare from neglecting his duties he must spend in adorning his person. Not at all. The tenue of a dandy was never more cleverly used to mask the schemes of a Disraeli or the hard ambition of a Talleyrand than in Master Frederick Warncliffe, who was in reality going up the ladder hand over hand, and meant very soon to be on the top rungs. It was a curious party, typical of the house and of a certain stratum of London. When every now and then in the pauses of their own conversation Ellesmere caught something of the chatter going on at the other end of the table, or when the party became fused into one for a while under the genial influence of a good story or the exhilaration of a personal skirmish, the whole scene—the dainty oval room, the lights, the servants, the exquisite fruit and flowers, the gleaming silver, the tapestry walls—would seem to him for an instant like a mirage, a dream, yet with something glittering and arid about it which a dream never has. The hard self-confidence of these people—did it belong to the same world as that humbling, that heavenly self-abandonment which had shone on him that afternoon from Charles Richards's begrimed and blood-stained face? Blessed are the poor in spirit, he said to himself once with an inward groan. Why am I here? Why am I not at home with Catherine? But Madame de Netville was pleasant to him. He had never seen her so womanly, never felt more grateful for her delicate social skill. As she talked to him, or to the Frenchman, of literature, or politics, or famous folk, flashing her beautiful eyes from one to the other, Sir John Hedlam would, every now and then, turn his odd, puckered face observantly towards the farther end of the table. "'By Jove!' he said afterwards to Warncliffe, as they walked away from the door together. "'She was inimitable to-night. She has more rolls than de Foray.' Sir John and his hostess were very old friends. Upstairs smoking began, Lady Aubrey and Madame de Netfield joining in. Monsieur de Quariel, having talked the best of his repertoire at dinner, was now inclined for amusement, and had discovered that Lady Aubrey could amuse him, and was, moreover, une belle personne. 
Madame de Nedville was obliged to give some time to Lord Rupert. The other men stood chatting politics and the latest news, till Rupert, conscious of a complete failure of social energy, began to look at his watch. Instantly Madame de Nedville glided up to him. "'Mr. Ellesmere, you have talked no business to me, and I must know how my affairs in Elgood Street are getting on. Come into my little writing-room.' She led him into a tiny panelled room at the far end of the drawing-room, and shut off from it by a heavy curtain, which she now left half-drawn. "'The latest,' said Fred Warncliffe to Lady Aubrey, raising his eyebrows with the slightest motion of the head towards the writing-room. "'I suppose so,' she said indifferently. "'She's east-ending for a change. We all do it nowadays.' It is like Dizzy's young man who liked bad wine, he was so bored with good. Meanwhile, Madame de Netville was leaning against the open window of the fantastic little room, with Robert beside her. You look as if you had had a strain, she said to him abruptly, after they had talked business for a few minutes. What has been the matter? He told her Richards's story very shortly. It would have been impossible to him to give more than the driest outline of it in that room. His companion listened gravely. She was an epicure in all things, especially in moral sensation, and she liked his moments of reserve and strong self-control. They made his general expansiveness more distinguished. Presently there was a pause, which she broke by saying, "'I was at your lecture last Sunday. You didn't see me.' "'Were you? Ah, I remember a person in black and veiled who puzzled me. I don't think we want you there, Madame de Netville.' His look was pleasant, but his tone had some decision in it. "'Why not? Is it only the artisans who have souls? A reformer should refuse no one.' "'You have your own opportunities,' he said quietly. "'I think the men prefer to have it to themselves for the present. Some of them are dreadfully in earnest.' "'Oh, I don't pretend to be in earnest,' she said, with a little wave of her hand. "'Or, at any rate, I know better than to talk of earnestness to you.' "'Why to me?' he asked, smiling. Oh, because you and your like have your fixed ideas of the upper class and the lower. One social type fills up your horizon. You are not interested in any other, and indeed you know nothing of any other. She looked at him defiantly. Everything about her to-night was splendid and regal. Her dress of black and white brocade, the dharmas at her throat, the carriage of her head, nay, the marks of experience and living on the dark, subtle face. "'Perhaps not,' he replied. "'It is enough for one life to try and make out where the English working class is tending to.' "'You are quite wrong, utterly wrong. The man who keeps his eye only on the lower class will achieve nothing. What can the idealist do without the men of action, the men who can take his beliefs and make them enter by violence into existing institutions? And the men of action are to be found with us.' "'It hardly looks just now as if the upper class was to go on enjoying a monopoly of them,' he said, smiling. "'Then appearances are deceptive. The populace supplies mass and weight, nothing else. What you want is to touch the leaders, the men and women whose voices carry, and then your populace would follow hard enough. For instance—and she dropped her aggressive tone and spoke with a smiling kindness—come down next Saturday to my little Surrey cottage.' You shall see some of these men and women there, and I will make you confess when you go away that you have profited your workmen more by deserting them than by staying with them. Will you come? My Sundays are too precious to me just now, Madame de Netteville. 
Besides, my firm conviction is that the upper class can produce a brook farm, but nothing more. The religious movement of the future will want a vast effusion of feeling and passion to carry it into action, and feeling and passion only to be generated in sufficient volume among the masses, where the vested interests of all kinds are less tremendous. You upper-class folk have your part, of course. Woe betide you if you shirk it, but— Oh, let us leave it alone, she said with a little shrug. I know you would give us all the work and refuse us all the profits. We are to starve for your workman, to give him our hearts and purses and everything we have, not that we may hoodwink him, which might be worth doing, but that he may rule us. It is too much. Very well, he said dryly, his colour rising. Very well, let it be too much. And, dropping his lounging attitude, he stood erect, and she saw that he meant to be going. Her look swept over him from head to foot, over the worn face with its look of sensitive refinement and spiritual force, the active frame, the delicate but most characteristic hand. Never had any man so attracted her for years. Never had she found it so difficult to gain a hold. Eugenie de Netteville, poseuse, schemer, woman of the world that she was, was losing command of herself. "'What did you really mean by worldliness and the world in your lecture last Sunday?' she asked him suddenly, with a little accent of scorn. "'I thought your diatribes absurd. What you religious people call the world is really only the average opinion of sensible people which neither you nor your kind could do without for a day.' He smiled, half amused by her provocative tone, and defended himself not very seriously. But she threw all her strength into the argument, and he forgot that he meant to go at once. When she chose, she could talk admirably, and she chose now. She had the most aggressive way of attacking, and then, in the same breath, the most subtle and softening ways of yielding, and, as it were, of asking pardon. Directly her antagonist turned upon her, he found himself disarmed, he knew not how. The disputant disappeared, and he felt the woman, restless, melancholy, sympathetic, hungry for friendship and esteem, yet too proud to make any direct bid for either. It was impossible not to be interested, and touched. Such at least was the woman whom Robert Ellesmere felt. Whether in his hours of intimacy with her, twelve months before, young Alfred Evershed had received the same impression may be doubted. In all things Eugenie de Netteville was an artist. Suddenly the curtain dividing them from the larger drawing-room was drawn back, and Sir John Hedlam stood in the doorway. He had the glittering, amused eyes of a malicious child as he looked at them. "'Very sorry, madame,' he began, in his high-cracked voice, "'but Warncliffe and I are off to the new club to see De Foray. They've got her there to-night.' "'Go,' she said, waving her hand to him. "'I don't envy you. She's not what she was.' "'No, there's only one person,' he said, bowing with grotesque little airs of gallantry. For whom time stands still. Madame de Netville looked at him with smiling, half contemptuous serenity. He bowed again, this time with ironical emphasis, and disappeared. Perhaps I'd better go back and send them off, she said, rising. But you and I have not had our talk out yet. She led the way into the drawing room. Lady Aubrey was lying back on the velvet sofa, a little green parakeet that was accustomed to wander tamely about the room perching on her hand. She was holding the field against Lord Rupert and Mr. Addleston in a three-cornered duel of wits, while Monsieur de Querriol sat by, 
his plump hands on his knees, applauding. They all rose as their hostess came in. "'My dear,' said Lady Aubrey, "'it is disgracefully early, but my country before pleasure. It is the foreign office to-night, and since James took office I can't with decency absent myself. I'd rather be a scullery maid than a minister's wife. Lord Rupert, I would take you on if you want a lift.' She touched Madame de Netfield's cheek with her lips, nodding to the other men present, and went out, her fair stag-like head well in the air, chafing Lord Rupert, who obediently followed her, performing marvellous feats of agility in his desire to keep out of the way of the superb train sweeping behind her. It always seemed as if Lady Aubrey could have had no childhood, as if she must always have had just that voice and those eyes. Tears she could never have shed, not even as a baby over a broken toy. Besides, at no period of her life could she have looked upon a lost possession as anything else than the opportunity for a new one. The other men took their departure for one reason or another. It was not late, but London was in full swing, and M. de Coriel talked with gusto of four at-homes still to be grappled with. As she dismissed Mr. Warncliffe, Robert, too, held out his hand. "'No,' she said, with a quick impetuousness, "'no, I want my talk out. It is barely half-past ten, and neither of us wants to be racing about London to-night.' Elsmere had always a certain lack of social decision, and he lingered, rather reluctantly, for another ten minutes, as he supposed. She threw herself into her low chair. The windows were open to the back of the house, and the roar of Piccadilly and Sloane Street came borne in upon the warm night air. Her superb dark head stood out against a stand of yellow lilies close behind her, and the little parakeet, bright with all the colours of the tropics, perched now on her knee, now on the back of her chair, touched every now and then by quick, unsteady fingers. Then an instant followed, which Elsmer remembered to his dying day, with shame and humiliation. In ten minutes from the time of their being left alone, a woman who was five years his senior had made him what was practically a confession of love, had given him to understand that she knew what were the relations between himself and his wife, and had implored him with the quick breath of an indescribable excitement to see what a woman's sympathy and a woman's unique devotion could do for the causes he had at heart. The truth broke upon Ellesmere very slowly, awakening in him, when at last it was unmistakable, a swift agony of repulsion, which his most friendly biographer can only regard with a kind of grim satisfaction. For, after all, there is an amount of innocence and absent-mindedness in matters of daily human life, which is not only nisari, but comes very near to moral wrong. In this crowded world a man has no business to walk about with his eyes always on the stars. His stumbles may have too many consequences. A harsh but salutary truth. If Ellesmere needed it, it was bitterly taught him during a terrible half-hour. When the half-coherent, enigmatical sentences, to which he listened at first with a perplexed surprise, began gradually to define themselves, when he found a woman roused and tragically beautiful between him and escape, when no determination on his part not to understand, when nothing he could say availed to protect her from herself, when they were at last face to face with a confession and an appeal which were a disgrace to both, then at last Ellesmere paid, in one minute glad life's arrears, the natural penalty of an optimism, a boundless faith in human nature, with which life, as we know it, 
is inconsistent. How he met the softness, the grace, the seduction of a woman who was an expert in all the arts of fascination, he never knew. In memory afterwards it was all a ghastly mirage to him. The low voice, the splendid dress, the scented room came back to him, and a confused memory of his own futile struggle to ward off what she was bent on saying, little else. He'd been maladroit, he thought, had lost his presence of mind. Any man of the world of his acquaintance, he believed, trampling on himself, would have done better. But when the softness and the grace were all lost in smart and humiliation, when the Madame de Netville of ordinary life disappeared, and something took a place which was like a coarse and malignant underself, suddenly brought into the light of day, from that point onwards, in after days, he remembered it all. "'I know,' cried Eugenie de Netville at last, standing at bay before him, her hands locked before her, her white lips quivering, when her cup of shame was full, and her one impulse left was to strike the man who had humiliated her. "'I know that you and your puritanical wife are miserable, miserable. What is the use of denying facts that all the world can see, that you have taken pains—' And she laid a fierce, deliberate emphasis on each word. "'All the world shall see?' There, let your wife's ignorance and bigotry, and your own obvious relation to her, be my excuse, if I wanted any. But—and she shrugged her white shoulders passionately—I want none. I am not responsible to your petty codes. Nature and feeling are enough for me. I saw you wanting sympathy and affection. My wife! cried Robert, hearing nothing but that one word. And then his glance, sweeping over the woman before him, he made a stern step forward. "'Let me go, Madame de Netfield, let me go, or I shall forget that you are a woman, and I a man, and that in some way I cannot understand my own blindness and folly. "'Must have led to this most undesirable scene,' she said with mocking suddenness, throwing herself, however, effectually in his way. Then a change came over her, and erect, ghastly white, with frowning brow and shaking limbs, a baffled and smarting woman from whom every restraint had fallen away, let loose upon him a torrent of gall and bitterness which he could not have cut short without actual violence. He stood proudly enduring it, waiting for the moment when what seemed to him an outbreak of mania should have spent itself. But suddenly he caught Catherine's name, coupled with some contemptuous epithet or other, and his self-control failed him. With flashing eyes he went close up to her and took her wrists in a grip of iron. "'You shall not,' he said, beside himself. "'You shall not. What have I done, what has she done, that you should allow yourself such words? My poor wife!' A passionate flood of self-reproachful love was on his lips. He choked it back. It was desecration that her name should be mentioned in that room. But he dropped the hand he held. The fierceness died out of his eyes. His companion stood beside him, panting, breathless, afraid. "'Thank God,' he said slowly, "'thank God for yourself and me that I love my wife. I am not worthy of her, doubly unworthy since it had been possible for any human being to suspect for one instant that I was ungrateful for the blessing of her love, that I could ever forget and dishonour her. But worthy or not, no, no matter. Madame de Netfield, let me go.' and forget that such a person exists. 
she looked at him steadily for a moment, at the stern manliness of the face, which seemed in this half-hour to have grown older, at the attitude with its mingled dignity and appeal. In that second she realised what she had done and what she had forfeited. She measured the gulf between herself and the man before her. But she did not flinch. Still holding him, as it were, with menacing, defiant eyes, she moved aside. She waved her hand with a contemptuous gesture of dismissal. He bowed, passed her, and the door shut. For nearly an hour afterwards Elsmere wandered blindly and aimlessly through the darkness and silence of the park. The sensitive, optimist nature was all unhinged, felt itself wrestling in the grip of dark, implacable things, upheld by a single thread above that moral abyss which yawns beneath us all, into which the individual life sinks so easily to ruin and nothingness. At such moments a man realises within himself, within the circle of consciousness, the germs of all things hideous and vile. Save for the grace of God, he says to himself, shuddering. Save only for the grace of God. Contempt for himself, loathing for life and its possibilities, as he had just beheld them. Moral tumult, pity, remorse, a stinging self-reproach. All these things wrestled within him. What, preached to others, and stumbled himself into such mire as this? Talk loudly of love and faith, and make it possible all the time that a fellow human creature should think you capable, at a pinch, of the worst treason against both? Elsmere dived to the very depth of his own soul that night. Was it all the natural consequence of a loosened bond, of a wretched relaxation of effort, a wretched acquiescence in something second best? Had love been cooling? Had it simply ceased to take the trouble love must take to maintain itself? And had this horror been the subtle, inevitable nemesis? All at once, under the trees of the park, Asmir stopped for a moment in the darkness, and bared his head with the passionate reverential action of a devotee before his saint. The lurid image which had been pursuing him gave way, and in its place came the image of a new-made mother, her child close within her sheltering arm. Ah! It was all plain to him now. The moral tempest had done its work. One task of all tasks had been set him from the beginning, to keep his wife's love. If she had slipped away from him, to the injury and moral lessening of both, on his cowardice, on his clumsiness, be the blame. Above all, on his fatal power of absorbing himself in a hundred outside interests, controversy, literature, society. Even his work seemed to have lost half its sacredness. If there be a canker at the root, no matter how large the show of leaf and blossom overhead, there is but the more to wither. Of what worth is any success but that which is grounded deep on the rock of personal love and duty? Oh, let him go back to her, wrestle with her, open his heart again, try new ways, make new concessions. How faint the sense of her trial had been growing within him of late, hers which had once been more terrible to him than his own. He feels the special temptations of his own nature. He throws himself, humbled, convicted, at her feet. The woman, the scene he has left, is effaced, blotted out by the natural intense reaction of remorseful love. 
So he sped homewards at last through the noise of Oxford Street, seeing, hearing nothing. He opened his own door, and let himself into the dim, silent house. How the moment recalled to him that other supreme moment of his life at Muirwell. No light in the drawing-room. He went upstairs and softly turned to the handle of her room. Inside the room seemed to him nearly dark, but the window was wide open. The free, loosely growing branches of the plane-trees made a dark, delicate network against the luminous blue of the night. A cool air came to him laden with an almost rural scent of earth and leaves. By the window sat a white, motionless figure. As he closed the door it rose and walked towards him without a word. Instinctively Robert felt that something unknown to him had been passing here. He paused, breathless, expectant. She came to him. She linked her cold, trembling fingers round his neck. "'Robert, I've been waiting so long. It was so late, I thought—' And she choked down a sob. "'Perhaps something has happened to him. We are separated for ever, and I shall never be able to tell him.' "'Robert, Mr. Flaxman talked to me. He opened my eyes. I've been so cruel to you, so hard. I have broken my vow. I don't deserve it. Robert? She had spoken with extraordinary self-command till the last word, which fell into a smothered cry for pardon. Catherine Ellesmere had very little of the soft clingingness which makes the charm of a certain type of woman. Each phrase she had spoken seemed to take with it a piece of her life. She trembled and tottered in her husband's arms. He bent over her with half-articulate words of amazement, of passion. He led her to her chair, and, kneeling before her, he tried, so far as the emotion of both would let him, to make her realise what was in his own heart, the penitence and longing which had winged his return to her. Without a mention of Madame de Netfield's name, indeed, that horror she should never know. But it was to it, as he held his wife, he owed his poignant sense of something half-jeopardised and wholly recovered. It was that consciousness in the background of his mind, ignorant of it as Catherine was then, and always, which gave the peculiar epoch-making force to this sacred and critical hour of their lives. But she would hear nothing of his self-blame, nothing. She put her hand across his lips. "'I have seen things as they are, Robert,' she said very simply. "'Well, I have been sitting here, and downstairs, after Mr. Flaxman left me. You were right. I would not understand. And in a sense I shall never understand. I cannot change. And her voice broke into piteousness. My lord is my lord always. But he is yours, too. Oh, I know it. Say what you will. That is what has been hidden from me. That is what my trouble has taught me. The parlousness, the worthlessness of words. It is the spirit that quickeneth. I should never have felt it so but for this fiery furnace of pain. But I have been wandering in strange places, through strange thoughts. God has not one language, but many. I have dared to think he had but one, the one I knew. I have dared, and she faltered, to condemn your faith as no faith. Oh, I lay there so long in the dark downstairs, seeing you by that bed. I heard your voice. I crept to your side. Jesus was there, too, 
Ah, he was. He was. Leave me that comfort. What are you saying? Wrong? You? Unkind? Your wife knows nothing of it. Oh, did you think when you came in just now before dinner that I didn't care, that I had a heart of stone? Did you think I had broken my solemn promise, my vow to you, that day at Muirwell? So I have, a hundred times over. I made it in ignorance. I have not counted the cost. How could I? It was all so new, so strange. I dare not make it again. The will is so weak, circumstances so strong. But, oh, take me back into your life. Hold me there. Remind me always of this night. Convict me out of my own mouth. But I will learn my lesson. I will learn to hear the two voices, the voice that speaks to you and the voice that speaks to me. I must. It is all plain to me now. It has been appointed me. Then she broke down into a kind of weariness, and fell back in her chair, her delicate fingers straying with soft childish touch over his hair. But I am past thinking. Let us bury it all and begin again. Words are nothing. Strange ending to a day of torture. As she tired above him in the dimness, white and pure and drooping, her force of nature all dissolved, lost in this new heavenly weakness of love. He thought of the man who passed through the place of sin and the place of expiation, and saw at last the rosy light creeping along the east, caught the white moving fingers, and that sweet distant melody rising through the luminous air, which announced to him the approach of Beatrice, and the nearness of those shining tablelands whereof our God himself is moon and sun. For eternal life, the ideal state, is not something future and distant. Dante knew it when he talked of Kerke in paradisa la mia mente. Paradise is here, visible and tangible by mortal eyes and hands, whenever self is lost in loving, whenever the narrow limits of personality are beaten down by the inrush of the divine spirit. End of Book 6 Chapter 43